Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. These are both TED Talks. The first is by Aaron Shark, and the second is by Susan Kleibold. I was almost a school shooter. In 1996, Denver, Colorado, as a student in North High, in a moment of pain and anger, I almost committed a terrible atrocity. Growing up, I learned early on that there was a strange comfort and calmness in darkness. I was always the new kid. My family was very violent and aggressive, drug-addicted parents. We were moving from place to place a lot, went to 30 or 40 different schools, always seemed to be going to a new school every other week. You woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning by some cops to run across the country to get away from them and then end up at a school I'd only be at for a couple weeks and then have to do it all again a couple days later. was the perpetual new kid. And since I also had such an unstable household, wasn't helped by the fact that I smelled really bad because I never had a shower or didn't really have any clean clothes, so I never really had any... Uh, all my clothes were dirty and torn. I had a weight problem. I was smart. I liked comic books at a time when kids didn't really like people who liked comic books that much. So every time I went to a new school, I was in a whole new set of bullies. They'd do things like walk up to me and shoot me with a harpoon like I was a whale or dump food on my head because they said I was too fat. But the bullying wasn't just at home, or wasn't just at school. It happened at home a lot, too. I was told I was worthless by just about everybody in my life. And when you're told you're worthless enough, you will believe it. Then you're going to do everything you can to make everybody else agree with it, too. And so I did. I wrapped that darkness around me like a blanket and used it as a shield. It would keep the few that would agree with me close, but it kept everybody else away. I always had heard in life that there was good people and bad people. I must be one of the bad people, so I guess I would have to just do what I was supposed to do. So I got really aggressive. 12, 13 years old, I got really into heavy metal music, and I was the mosh pit when I went to concerts. The abuse just never seemed to stop. I got into cutting around 14 or 15, because I figured that there was all this extreme emotion going on in my life I had absolutely no control over. Had to find some way to find control over something, so I took to cutting myself. I still have the scars to this day. 15, 16 years old, I was ended up homeless. My parents had long ago kicked me out because I didn't want to deal with their drunken fighting anymore, so I was living on the streets. I had thought I had pushed all my other friends away too, shoved them all away by lying to them or stealing from them or doing everything that my family taught me how to react to everybody, which was the complete wrong way of how to, how to react. But I had no idea. I was just going on what I was taught. Finally, 16 years old, I'm sitting in my best friend's shed who I thought I had already pushed away too by stealing from him and lying from him. Laying in this shed with the roof wide open, rain pouring down on me into a dungy grace chair that it was covered in cobwebs and dirt, hadn't been touched in months. And I'm sitting there with my arm covered in blood, knowing that if I didn't do something, I was going to kill myself soon. So I did the only thing I could think to do. Grabbed a phone book and I called social services. So when I went to social services, Sadly, they didn't just bring me in there. They also took my mom in there, too, who happened to be one of the largest sources of my pain growing up. And since she had spent her entire life running from place to place and dealing with social workers and police officers, she knew exactly what to say to get, me to, to, to get them to believe that I was just making it all up. It was all just an act. I was just doing it for attention. And they sent me home with her. And as they sent me home with her, she turned to me and she said, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. 
My heart just got ripped out of me at that point completely. That darkness that I've been staring in for so long, I just ran headlong into it. I had nothing left to live for. I literally had nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, you, have ever, you can do anything. And that is a terrifying thought. I decided that my act of doing something was I was going to express my extreme anger and rage by getting a gun. I was going to attack either my school or a mall food court. Really didn't matter to me which one. It wasn't about the people. It was about the largest amount of damage in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of security. Both those places were ripe targets. So I wish I had a better story about actually getting a gun, but that was actually really rather businesslike. There was some gangbanger kids near my school. It was back in the mid-90s when gangs were still a rather major problem in North Denver schools. This kid had seen me, he knew me from my family, and he'd sold drugs to them before, and he knew that I wasn't really in school, I was just always at school, so he knew I wasn't a narc or anything like that, but didn't know him anything more than a first name, but that didn't really take anything more than that. I knew that they had access to guns, they talked about it all the time. So I went up to him and said, hey, can you get me a gun? Sure, get me an ounce. All right, give me three days. That was it. I was waiting to get myself a gun so I could kill a lot of people. But thankfully, I wasn't alone in that darkness. That best friend who had saved me, who had, I was sleeping in his shed, he saw the place that I was in. Even though I had stolen from him and lied to him and took in his belongings and ruined it all, he didn't care. He still brought me in and showed me acts of kindness. Just simple acts. It wasn't the kind of overbearing kindness where they come to you and they say, is there anything I can do to you? Is there a program I can get you in? Is there something I can do to make you better? How can I help you? It was literally just sitting down next to me. Hey, would you like a meal? Let's watch a movie. Treat it like it was a Tuesday. Treat me like I was a person. And when someone treats you like you're a person, when you don't even feel like you're human, it'll change your entire world. And it did to me. He stopped me with his acts of kindness from committing that atrocity that day. If you see someone who's in that spot that needs that love, give it to them. Love the ones you feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. It'll help you just like as much as it helps them. We're in a really big dangerous spot right now with this trend of arming the teachers and looking out for the kids who might be the threat in schools and maybe turning them into the FBI. What's that going to do to a kid who's in the position that I was in 25 years ago who's alone and depressed and abused and is just sitting there hurting and someone thinks that they're a threat. So he gets turned into the FBI. And one month of pain turns into a lifetime of legal trouble because one person thought he was going to be a problem. Instead of looking at that kid like he's a threat, look at him like he might be a friend. Look at him like you might be able to bring him into your fold. Show him that it's just a Tuesday. Show him that he's worth it. Show him that he can exist in this pain, even though it's intense, that at the end of it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I found my light. Now I'm a happy family man. I have a father of four. My wife and my daughter are in the audience today. And even bigger than that, even bigger than that, the friend who saved my life, he's in the audience today too. Because friendship doesn't ever really die. We have to give love to the people who we think deserve it the least. Thank you. Thank you.
the last time I heard my son's voice was when he walked out the front door on his way to school. He called out one word in the darkness, bye. It was April 20th, 1999. Later that morning at Columbine High School, my son Dylan and his friend Eric killed 12 students and a teacher and wounded more than 20 others before taking their own lives. 13 innocent people were killed, leaving their loved ones in a state of grief and trauma. Others sustained injuries, some resulting in disfigurement and permanent disability. But the enormity of the tragedy can't be measured only by the number of deaths and injuries that took place. There's no way to quantify the psychological damage of those who were in the school or who took part in rescue or cleanup efforts. There's no way to assess the magnitude of a tragedy like Columbine, especially when it can be a blueprint for other shooters who go on to commit atrocities of their own. Columbine was a tidal wave, and when the crash ended, it would take years for the community and for society to comprehend its impact. It has taken me years to try to accept my son's legacy. The cruel behavior that defined the end of his life showed me that he was a completely different person from the one I knew. Afterwards, people asked, how could you not know? What kind of a mother were you? I still ask myself those same questions. Before the shootings, I thought of myself as a good mom, helping my children become caring, healthy, responsible adults was the most important role in my life. But the tragedy convinced me that I failed as a parent. And it's partially this sense of failure that brings me here today. Aside from his father, I was the one person who knew and loved Dylan the most. If anyone could have known what was happening, it should have been me, right? But I didn't know. Today, I'm here to share the experience of what it's like to be the mother of someone who kills and hurts. For years after the tragedy, I combed through memories, trying to figure out exactly where I failed as a parent. But there are no simple answers. I can't give you any solutions. All I can do is share what I have learned. When I talk to people who didn't know me before the shootings, I have three challenges to meet. First, when I walk into a room like this, I never know if someone there has experienced loss because of what my son did. I feel a need to acknowledge the suffering caused by a member of my family who wasn't here to do it for himself. So first, with all of my heart, I'm sorry if my son has caused you pain. The second challenge I have is that I must ask for understanding and even compassion when I talk about my son's death as a suicide. Two years before he died, he wrote on a piece of paper in a notebook that he was cutting himself. He said that he was in agony and wanted to get a gun so he could end his life. I didn't know about any of this until months after his death. When I talk about his death, as a suicide, I'm not trying to downplay the viciousness he showed at the end of his life. I'm trying to understand 
how his suicidal thinking led to murder. After a lot of reading and talking with experts, I've come to believe that his involvement in the shootings was rooted not in his desire to kill, but in his desire to die. The third challenge I have when I talk about my son's murder-suicide is that I'm talking about mental health. Excuse me. Excuse me. Is that I'm talking about mental health, or brain health, as I prefer to call it, because it's more concrete. And in the same breath, I'm talking about violence. The last thing I want to do is to contribute to the misunderstanding that already exists around mental illness. Only a very small percent of those who have a mental illness are violent toward other people. But of those who die by suicide, it's estimated that about 75 to maybe more than 90% have a diagnosable mental health condition of some kind. As you all know very well, our mental health care system is not equipped to help everyone. And not everyone with destructive thoughts fits the criteria for a specific diagnosis. Many who have ongoing feelings of fear or anger or hopelessness are never assessed or treated. Too often, they get our attention only if they reach a behavioral crisis. If estimates are correct, that about 1% to 2% of all suicides involves the murder of another person. When suicide rates rise, as they are rising for some populations, then murder-suicide rates will rise as well. I wanted to understand what was going on in Dylan's mind prior to his death. So I looked for answers from other survivors of suicide loss. I did research and volunteered to help with fundraising events. And whenever I could, I talked with those who had survived their own suicidal crisis or attempt. One of the most helpful conversations I had was with a coworker who overheard me talking to someone else in my office cubicle. She heard me say that Dylan could not have loved me if he could do something as horrible as he did. Later, when she found me alone, she apologized for overhearing that conversation, but told me that I was wrong. She said that when she was a young single mother with three small children, she became severely depressed and was hospitalized to keep her safe. At the time, she was certain that her children would be better off if she died, so she had made a plan to end her life. She assured me that a mother's love was the strongest bond on earth and that she loved her children more than anything in the world. But because of her illness, she was sure that they would be better off without her. What she said and what I've learned from others is that we do not make the so-called decision or choice to die by suicide in the same way that we choose what car to drive or where to go on a Saturday night. When someone is in an extremely suicidal state, they are in a stage four medical health emergency. Their thinking is impaired and they've lost access to tools of self-governance. Even though they can make a plan and act with logic, their sense of truth is distorted by a filter of pain through which they interpret their reality. Some people can be very good at hiding this state, and they often have good reasons for doing that. 
Many of us have suicidal thoughts at some point, but persistent, ongoing thoughts of suicide and devising a means to die are symptoms of pathology. And like many illnesses, the condition has to be recognized and treated before a life is lost. But my son's death was not purely a suicide. It involved mass murder. I wanted to know how his suicidal thinking became homicidal. But research is sparse, and there are no simple answers. Yes, he probably had ongoing depression. He had a personality that was perfectionistic and self-reliant, and that made him less likely to seek help from others. He had experienced triggering events at the school that left him feeling debased and humiliated and mad. And he had a complicated friendship with a boy who shared his feelings of rage and alienation and who was seriously disturbed, controlling, and homicidal. And on top of this period in his life of extreme vulnerability and fragility, Dylan found access to guns, even though we'd never owned any in our home. It was appallingly easy for a 17-year-old boy to buy guns, both legally and illegally, without my permission or knowledge. And somehow, 17 years and many school shootings later, it's still appallingly easy. What Dylan did that day broke my heart. And as trauma so often does, it took a toll on my body and on my mind. Two years after the shootings, I got breast cancer. And two years after that, I began to have mental health problems. On top of the constant perpetual grief, I was terrified that I would run into a family member of someone Dylan had killed or be accosted by the press or by an angry citizen. I was afraid to turn on the news, afraid to hear myself being called a terrible parent or a disgusting person. I started having panic attacks. The first bout started four years after the shootings when I was getting ready for the depositions and would have to meet the victims' families face to face. The second round started six years after the shootings when I was preparing to speak publicly about murder-suicide for the first time at a conference. Both episodes lasted several weeks. The attacks happened everywhere, in the hardware store, in my office, or even while reading a book in bed. My mind would suddenly lock into this spinning cycle of terror, and no matter how hard I tried to calm myself down or reason my way out of it. I couldn't do it. It felt as if my brain was trying to kill me. And then being afraid of being afraid consumed all of my thoughts. That's when I learned firsthand what it feels like to have a malfunctioning mind. And that's when I truly became a brain health advocate. With therapy and medication and self-care, life eventually returned to whatever could be thought of as normal under the circumstances. 
When I look back on all that had happened, I could see that my son's spiral into dysfunction probably occurred over a period of about two years. Plenty of time to get him help. If only someone had known that he needed help and known what to do. Every time someone asks me, how could you not have known? It feels like a punch in the gut. It carries accusation and taps into my feelings of guilt that no matter how much therapy I've had, I will never fully eradicate. But here's something I've learned. If love were enough to stop someone who was suicidal from hurting themselves, suicides would hardly ever happen. But love is not enough. And suicide is prevalent. It's the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 34. And 15% of American youth report having made a suicide plan in the last year. I've learned that no matter how much we want to believe we can, we cannot know or control everything our loved ones think and feel. And the stubborn belief that we are somehow different, that someone we love would never think of hurting themselves or someone else, can cause us to miss what's hidden in plain sight. And if worst-case scenarios do come to pass, we'll have to learn to forgive ourselves for not knowing or for not asking the right questions or not finding the right treatment. We should always assume that someone we love may be suffering, regardless of what they say or how they act. We should listen with our whole being, without judgment and without offering solutions. I know that I will live with this tragedy, with these multiple tragedies, for the rest of my life. I know that in the minds of many, What I lost can't compare to what the other families lost. I know my struggle doesn't make theirs any easier. I know there are even some who think I don't have the right to any pain, but only to a life of permanent penance. In the end, what I know comes down to this. The tragic fact is that even the most vigilant and responsible of us may not be able to help. But for love's sake, we must never stop trying to know the unknowable. Thank you. Thank you.